Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. This is the word of the Lord. Good to be back with you after a couple of weeks off. Thanks to Brian for preaching the last two Sundays. So today we're wrapping up Hebrews, which we've been in since the beginning of the year. What a great book it is. Uh, this week, I read uh, an article online by uh, written, I think it was written a couple of years ago by a, a television critic that I like to read as he reviews new TV shows. But this was a, an article about how television shows, just in general, have dramatically shifted over the past 25 or so years, specifically, excuse me, specifically in the first decade of this century, this millennium, really, in the first decade of the 2000s. Prior to the 2000s, uh, this critic argued most TV shows were, they were serialized, right? That is, each episode of a show was self-contained. So you could watch one episode, not having to have had of watched prior episodes, and know what was going on. So Law and Order, those kinds of shows, all the shows that are on CBS now, basically, that old people watch, um, those are the shows that are like that. They're, they're self-contained in and of themselves. Each episode has a mystery or a crime, and each episode contains its own resolution. But beginning in the, the 2000s, um, the television industry shifted to telling much longer arc stories. Uh, 
where you had to watch each episode or most episodes to understand what was going on. And the episodes, of course, like good stories do, they, they built one on another. The most interesting thing in this article was that the, the author argues that in this new television age, the most important factor in how a given TV show is remembered is the series finale. How the show ends. The quality of the show, the article argued, is largely judged by the last episode. So shows like Lost, don't get me started on Lost and its finale. That's, a, that's another sermon entirely. Or The Sopranos. You know, those famous final episodes are, are great examples of this fact. And, and as I was reading this article, frankly, it had nothing to do with the sermon, to be honest with you. But it did make me think about Hebrews. Because I think Christianity is somewhat like that. It's a longer arc story. And, and here's the key. We judge Christianity by its finale. And Hebrews has told us, it's been teaching us for six months now, that Jesus is the finale. Jesus is the finale of the story God is telling. Jesus is the capstone of all of it. He's the fulfillment of all of the promises that God has made throughout the scriptures. We saw it at the very beginning of Hebrews in chapter 1. One of the first things the author tells us is that in these last days, since Jesus has come, God has spoken. God has spoken with finality to us in and through his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he created the world. And the author has argued throughout the entire letter that Jesus, as the finale, as God's last word, is better. He's better than anything else. And he's especially better than the old ways, which these Jewish Christians in the first century were being tempted to return to. So today, we're going to conclude the series by looking again at how Jesus is better. And uh, in these verses, the author summarizes, I think, one final time his main reason for writing. And so let's just ask the Holy Spirit to clear our hearts and to clear our minds of distraction and to help us listen to God speak words of life and words of truth to us. You know, as you read through Hebrews 13, it, it seems like a random assortment of commands and encouragements from the author. We saw that last week when Brian taught on the first six verses, and we see it again here. By my count, there are 22 different bits of instruction in this one chapter. Here's how I think about it. Imagine the author, we don't know who he was, but a first century Jewish believer who's very intellectually formed by the gospel. Imagine him, you know, writing the letter, and I think of it as if he's running out of parchment, you know. And parchment is, of course, very valuable in the first century, and he's sort of scribbling along the bottom and then writing maybe up along the margin. He's out of space, and so he's like, okay, uh, love your enemies. It's it. Brotherly love continue. Remember your leaders, one thing after another. He's just trying to get everything off of his chest. Or maybe... The person who's going to deliver the letter to its recipients has showed up. And he's like, hey, the ship's leaving in 30 minutes. Could you finish the letter already? And so the author's just quickly trying to scribble down everything he can think of, get it on the page, roll it up, and give it to the person who's going to take it to its recipients. That's kind of how Hebrews 13 seems and, and feels. And so because the chapter is really an assorted assemblage of all kinds of ideas, 
it's really hard to preach on. <laughs> There's a couple of things we could do here. We could spend 10 weeks in this chapter. We're not voting, by the way. I'm telling you, this is not what we're going to do, but we could. We could spend 10 weeks in this chapter. I could try to, you know, summarize how all these ideas fit together thematically, and I do think that they do fit together thematically, but I'm not going to do either of those today. What I'm going to do is focus on a particular section of the chapter, one that I think summarizes the main idea of the entire letter again for us. So verse 8 through verse 14 is really where we're going to spend all of our time. Of course, I commend the entire chapter to you, especially those verses about honoring your leaders and praying for your leaders and making their job joyful and not a pain in the butt. That's the Luke translation, by the way. Read those verses and maybe repent. And maybe think about those verses for a little while. Now, I commend the whole chapter to you seriously, but we've called this series, Jesus is Better. And that's the main idea of these verses too. And I want to show you three ways this morning that Jesus is better. First, Jesus is unchanging. Second, Jesus is enough. And then last, Jesus is worth it. Okay, so let's go. First, Jesus is unchanging. Look in verse 7. In verse 7, the author says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the words of God. Imitate their way of faith. Imitate their life. This, of course, well, not of course. This refers to past leaders, um, to leaders whom these Christians have had in their lives, but whom have now passed on. In fact, in that context, it's likely that some of them might have been martyred for their faith, given the context in which Hebrews was written. So he says, remember those leaders who have come and fought the good fight and run the race with perseverance and imitate them. And then he says in verse 8, this amazing statement. What a great verse. One of the most famous verses in Hebrews. He says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And I hope that you can see that there's a connection between what he says in verse 7 and what he says in verse 8. He's encouraging the original audience, and he's encouraging us now by saying basically this. Hey, guys. Hey, gals. The same Jesus that was with our forefathers, that was with our ancestors in the faith, that led them through mountains and through valleys, that led them through joys and through trials, that guided them into the eternal city, that Jesus, the same Jesus, is with you now. Jesus does not change. Jesus is unchanging. How can the author say that about the man, Jesus? Well, he can say it here in chapter 13 because he spent an entire letter teaching us about who Jesus is. We've seen that Jesus is the image of the invisible God who has now, through his resurrection and ascension into heaven, been exalted at the right hand of God, the Father, and been crowned with all authority and honor. We've seen that Jesus is the last priest, the last mediator between God and man that any of us will ever need. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek, we read, who's made the final sacrifice, one of himself, at the final altar, of the cross. We've seen that Jesus is the one who finished the race that was set before him. He is, chapter 12 tells us, the founder and perfecter of our faith who now reigns over this world and one day will come again to renew it and to renew us. Jesus is God 
And God is always God. He's immutable. He always bears the same perfect characteristics and marks. And so the reality of Jesus always being the same flows out of who he is, and it flows out of what he has done. His redemptive work is completed, and we can trust that the effects of it won't change. This verse affirms for you, listen friends, it affirms the constancy, the constancy of Jesus. What great news that is. This verse is good news for you today. What does it mean? John Bunyan famously, most famously wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, but he wrote a lot of other really good books. And in one of his other books, he says this, the love of Christ decays not. That's what this verse means. The love of Christ decays not. You know, think about how often our desires or our plans decay. If you're anything like me, uh, that's true. I've set out to do hundreds of things, maybe thousands of things, to read this book or to begin this exercise routine or to start this diet or to have this experience with my family. And I've fallen off. I've stopped. I've quit. I've lost momentum. I've gotten tired of it. Jesus never quits. Jesus never loses momentum in his love towards you. He is a constant when we are variables. Some of you need to believe that today because you don't sense the love of God for you now in the way that you used to, in the way that maybe you did when you first became a follower of Jesus. And maybe the reason for that is that you've made a huge mistake in your life. Or maybe you've made a big mess of a critical relationship. Or maybe you've uh, just changed emotionally and intellectually so that the verses that used to resonate with you just don't seem to have the resonance that they used to, and there seems to be some static in your relationship with God. It's good news for you today to hear that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today. That is, he loves you in spite of your own failures and mistakes and messes. If what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 is true, here's what he tells us in Romans 5. While we were still sinners, notice that's past tense, Christ died for us. If Jesus loved us as sinners in the past, then we see here that he must also love us when we're sinners in the present. And he will also love us when we're sinners in the future because he's the same. He's unchanging. There's no way To lose his favor as we run on what we've seen in Hebrews is this ultra marathon that we call life. There's no way Jesus is going to give up on you because he doesn't change. He will love you to the end. And just as a side note, he's going to love your children and your grandchildren and your great, great, great grandchildren who aren't even going to remember your name to the end because he's going to be the same forever. Dane Ortland, in his wonderful book, uh, Gentle and Lowly, puts it this way. Jesus will love us because he cannot bear to do otherwise. No exit strategy, no prenup. He'll love to the end of our lives, to the end of our sins, to the end of our temptations, to the end of our fears. Jesus is unchanging. The same. 
in his grace and love yesterday and today and forever. Isn't that good news? Secondly, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Look at verse 9. The author gives another directive here. Do not be led away. Do not be led astray, you could translate it, by diverse and strange teachings. Why not? Because it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So what are we to make of this? Well, we know that this original audience, we've seen it again and again, they were being tempted to go back in reverse to the old ways of Judaism, because most of them were Jewish, back to the rituals and the feasts and the sacrifices of the Old Testament, to the smells and bells of the Old Testament, so to speak. And we've seen how the author argues at length to them that this is spiritually detrimental for them. And that's certainly wrapped up in what he's getting at here with the mention of foods. We don't know exactly, to be honest, what's going on here, but apparently there was some sort of false teaching going around in that church or in those churches that still made the case that observing the kosher laws of the Old Testament, and in particular, I think, eating food that had been involved in temple ritual sacrifice will help you move forward in spiritual maturity. And we do know, by the way, just to help guide our understanding here, we do know from the Old Testament book of Leviticus that one of the ways, you know, priests, pastors in the Old Testament, one of the ways they got paid is that when you brought an animal sacrifice uh, to the tabernacle or, or later to the temple, um, a lot of the time the pastor got to take a part of the meat that was offered in that sacrifice. So the blood of the animal was used in the temple ritual. And then, as we see in verse 11, the rest of the body was destroyed. But the priests could keep some of the, be- like the filet mignon of the goats and the rams and the lambs and the cattle. And you got to use it to feed your family. And so he's thinking, I think, about how in the Old Testament, the priests who served in the temple, tabernacle, who served in the temple, got to eat some of the food that was offered in the ritual process. And so perhaps there was some teaching alleging that a, some sort of similar practice should return or that particular foods are spiritually special for you. Either way, either way, here's the point. The heart of this false teaching, and really the heart of all false teaching, is that you need a special way You need a special ritual. You need a special insight to really get it, to really grow up, to really draw near to God. But what does the author say? He says, don't be led astray by this. Our hearts, he says, are not strengthened by eating particular foods. He's referring to our spiritual selves, of course, not our spiritual, or not our physical hearts. Our hearts are not strengthened by refraining from particular foods, for that matter. He says our hearts are not strengthened by religious rituals that we think will put us on the inside path to spiritual maturity. Our hearts, according to verse 9, are only strengthened, what does he say? By grace. And furthermore, he's saying that we should not be fooled into thinking that we need more practices or more instructions other than what we have received in Christ to draw near to God. That's what he means in verse 10. Look at what he says. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. What does that mean? It means that we're all priests now. We're all close to God now. The, 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 
the barrier of access that once existed between God and man that only priests could go into, as we've seen in Hebrews, has, has been broken. The author's saying, brothers and sisters, you are a kingdom of priests. And just like they got to eat from the Old Testament sacrificial altar in the temple, so you now have an altar from which you derive food that nourishes you. So what is the food? And what is the altar for that matter? Look at verse 11 and verse 12. He makes it clear in those verses. The point here is that Jesus is all that we need. Jesus has done all that is necessary for you and for I to be spiritually nourished, for you and for I to really be close with God. He says, Jesus has already suffered once for all for sins. Jesus has already, verse 12, sanctified us through his own blood. Jesus, he says, is enough. He's enough. All of the old systems and sacrifices, they were originally intended to point us to Jesus. We're not nourished by foods. We're not nourished by by ritual. We're nourished by Jesus' forgiveness and by the hope that Jesus brings. So let me ask you, are you being led astray? I think that's a fair question. Based on Hebrews 13, are you being led astray by, by a, fashion, a fascination with doctrines or teachings or practices that aren't really going to strengthen you? Let me repeat what I said just a second ago. The heart of false teaching, the heart of false teaching is that you need a special way or a special ritual, or a special insight to really get it. We take Jesus, when we're falling into false teaching, out of the center of our thinking and living, and and we put something or someone else there. Have you fallen prey to that? In this sense, all false teaching is inherently Gnostic. Gnostic. Gnosticism is an ancient heresy that, by the way, it's still around today, just it takes different forms. And it's based on the Greek word gnosis, which means secret. And Gnosticism, in all its various forms, basically says, if you get the secret teaching or the secret practice, you're really going to take off. You'll move from the JV spiritually to the varsity team spiritually. I remember when I was growing up, uh, I have two younger brothers. And my youngest brother, his name is Robert, is a really a really excellent golfer uh, that played college golf and growing up he was the best athlete of the three kids and when he was like eight years old he stopped doing all their sports and just committed himself to golf and was quite an accomplished golfer as a kid but my dad who was kind of his his coach his slave slave driver is probably the better way to put it was um was always looking for ways for robert to continue to get better and um, it's kind of funny to reflect on it, actually, and, and think about all the different ways they tried to find the gnosis of golf. You know what the gnosis of golf is, by the way? God-given talent. That's the gnosis. The secret of golf is God-given talent and a lot of hard work. But my, my, my dad and my brother would just go from one thing to another. This swing coach, or that adjustment in your grip, or this ball, or this new club, that's going to do it. That's going to get you over the hump. That's going to make the difference. That's going to put you on the next level. But, you know, he just, he has a ceiling. He got to the ceiling. He had a good time, but he's not playing in the U.S. Open today. That's what we all do when we're falling into false teaching. We're thinking that there's some other secret, there's some other way that's not Jesus and his gospel that's really going to make us insiders with God. 
For the Hebrew Christians, this was the old ways of Judaism. For you, it might be something else. And there are countless varieties of this. Teachings that become our central focus and implicitly tell us that we need Jesus plus this teaching. Maybe it's your eschatological view. Maybe it's your view of a certain spiritual gift that you have. Whatever it may be for you, the Spirit, through the Word, calls us in Hebrews 13 back to the center. Back to Jesus. He is all we need. He is enough. He has already brought us near to God in his suffering, in his death, in his resurrection. Stick with Jesus. He's unchanging. He's enough. And then the last thing, Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Look at verse 13. 13 and 14, in fact, they, they show us one final point that I think aptly summarizes one of the critical themes of Hebrews. Jesus is worth it. Look at these verses with me again. The author writes, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Now, the author's just written that Jesus, in his suffering and death, was killed outside the gate of Jerusalem which is a place of shame, a place of scorn. They thought he was going to conquer and take over in the middle of Jerusalem. Instead, what happens is he died outside Jerusalem. To use Old Testament language, Jesus we see here is he's the final scapegoat who bears away our sin and our guilt and who makes us holy through his bloodshed. And so now the author's saying, As a result of that, notice the word therefore there in verse 13. We follow in the way of Jesus. We go to him outside the camp. We bear, he says, the reproach he endured. That's been perhaps the key theme of the last three or four chapters of this letter. On the ultra marathon of life. In the life of faith, which chapter 11 spoke to us about. In the life in which we're seeking to live as followers of Jesus Christ. We're looking primarily to our future home. Right? To the city of God. And because of that, we will always be outsiders. We will always be pilgrims. We will always be resident aliens in this world. We will always bear some level as reproach because Jesus himself did and we're following in his footsteps. But Jesus, the author says, again and again and again, is worth it. It's worth the reproach. It's worth the shunning. It's worth the scorn. So the author, in a sense, is saying, and this is hard to hear for American Christians, but this is what he's saying. Come join Jesus in his sufferings. The Christian life, as Brian said last week, I like the way he put it, is one of giving, not taking. It's one of moving towards the needs of the world and not towards the comforts of the world. The Christian life move towards, moves towards the needs of the world and not towards the comforts of the world. And Hebrews says, because Jesus suffered outside the gate, move out from the camp of security and the camp of familiarity and the camp of ease and be willing to bear reproach with Jesus on the Calvary road. And because Jesus died there to sanctify you, don't do this in your own strength or virtue as a mere act of imitation. 
Do it, rather, in the strength and holiness that Christ purchased for you in his death. Hebrews has taught us to have not really an otherworldly, more like a next-worldly perspective. Do you have a next-worldly perspective? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith believes that the future city is indeed coming. It's the conviction of things not yet seen. Wrapping it up, let me just say this. Jesus did not die to make San Antonio in this life a paradise of comfort and ease for his people. Jesus died so that we would be willing to stop trying to do nothing but make our lives little paradises on earth, in San Antonio or anywhere else. Why? Because we're masochists? Because we love suffering? No. Because we're seeking the city that's to come. Do you see that? Verse 14, we do not have here a lasting city, but we're seeking the city which is to come. So our motive for going outside the camp, our motive for going towards need, not comfort, our motive for bearing reproach, our motive for caring about people is because there's a city coming, which chapter 12 calls the city of the living God. And it's better than anything this age offers. And it will last forever. And best of all, God in all of his fullness will be there. Undiminished, as chapter 12 tells us, in his glory. It will all be worth it. We've seen this pattern over and over in the letter. We saw it in chapter 10, where the Christians there move towards need, not comfort, by visiting prisoners. And when it cost them their property, the author told us they rejoiced because you knew that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. They were seeking the city that's coming, not comfort. So they moved towards need. We saw it in Hebrews 11, where Moses, as an example, moved towards need, not comfort. He writes, he chose rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Why? By what power did Moses do that? 11.26, he was looking to the reward. That is, he was looking for the city which is to come, and he deemed everything he was experiencing in this life as worth it. We saw it in verse 2 of chapter 12 when we read that Jesus himself, he moved toward need, not comfort. When he endured the cross, he despised its shame. By what power did Jesus do that? Verse 2, chapter 12, it was because of the joy set before him. That is, he looked to the city that is to come. We saw it last week. When Brian taught on verse 5 and 6, where Christians move towards need, not comfort, by keeping their lives free from the love of money, by being content with what they have, by showing hospitality to strangers. How? Verse 5, for God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Jesus is worth it. Hebrews has taught us. Because we are now and always safe in the keeping of God. I am a citizen of the city which is to come. And nothing can separate me from it. Nothing can steal that eternal citizenship away from me. So I will move now towards need and not just comfort. Because I know that what awaits me is rich and glorious and perfect. So in this life, I will live as if Christ is worth bearing reproach as if Christ is worth suffering. 
I will say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In fact, I consider everything rubbish. It's a weak translation. Not going to give you the strong one. Everything's rubbish for the sake of knowing Jesus and being found in him and sharing in his sufferings. Jesus is better. He's always worth giving our lives away for. He is enough. And he is unchanging in his love and commitment to us. In him, we have all we will ever need. So let's move towards need in the hope of our future city home where the great promise of Scripture will finally be fulfilled. He will be our God and we will be his people. Let's pray.